Good evening. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, my name is Anoush Grastana. I'm the joint political editor at The Guardian, and I'm going to be chairing um, this session, which is going to be very interesting, for the next hour. Now, this is um, inspired by the play St George and the Dragon. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but the title of today's chat, I won't call it a debate, is <coughs> Class and Unequal Nation, and there is plenty to talk about on that. So let me just introduce our panel. Um, so furthest from me, we've got Abid Hussein, who is the Director of Diversity at the Arts Council England, and has done a lot of work in trying to break down barriers on diversity in the arts. Dawn Foster, next to him, is a writer on politics, social affairs, economics, um, working a lot for us at The Guardian, but also for other publications. And you may well recognise her as a commentator on uh, many TV channels as well. We have David Lammy, who is the MP for Tottenham, has been since 2000, local lad, brought up one of five in the, um, in the area. Um, he's been doing lots recently. I was just saying very, very busy. Recently wrote a report about the experience of non-white people in the criminal justice system. Um, also causing a bit of trouble around Oxbridge and their intake, which I'm sure we will be talking about today. He's a former uh, Labour minister, but now in opposition, of course. And Mike Savage, who is Professor of Sociology at the LSE, also co-director there of the International Inequalities Institute and the key bit, one of the leaders of the BBC's Great British Class Survey. Now, let me start with you, Mike. It's a bit of an obvious one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Are we an une unequal nation? I think all of us in this room tonight have come here because we know it's an un unequal nation. Um, but let me just give a bit of, bit of context. I mean, um, Britain has become more unequal over the last 30 years at a rate which is, is, uh, is amongst the most striking in the world. So the United States leads the way. We've seen huge focus of income towards the top few percentile of the population. Within Europe, UK has seen a very similar trend. And we now, we moved from being a one of the more equal European societies in the 70s, and actually Britain was fairly you know, um, progressive in these terms, we're now amongst the most unequal. So we've seen a very large shift. And um, I think this has created a profound challenge for us as, as a society. What we've seen, and this is one of the big lessons of the Great British Class Survey, is that you know, we used to think of class in terms of middle class, working class, upper class, you know, fairly stable, you know, structural divisions. But what's happened is the top group have pulled away you know, as income levels have increased for top earners <coughs> and as uh, the wealth stocks have increased for the most prosperous, that group of very elite people have increasingly moved apart from ordinary middle working class people. Um, people at the bottom end of society have seen very little improvement in their, in, in their situation. Indeed, in some respects, they've seen a deterioration. <coughs> you can think about changes to benefit regimes and such like. Um, so we've seen this pulling apart and the middle layers of society. Um, I think there's a degree of uh, fuddiness and confusion about kind of where you fit these days. There's a lot of, lot of short-term mobility and instability about um, things like debt levels, income levels, insecure jobs. So uh, I think in, in a way classes are very much back with us because we are living in this very um, uh, unequal society. And you talk about class. I mean, David, let me ask you this question. To what extent, when we're talking about inequalities in income, is class in itself still relevant as a concept? Because some people might describe themselves as working class, even though they've moved up the income scale, or vice versa. <coughs> I think class is still hugely, profoundly relevant. 
it's almost a bit of a myth put out by the political class that, you know, class is gone. <laughs> it's not gone, it's very present. But there is one phenomenon that almost is indicative of how big the problem is, which is we tend to talk about white working class communities. And I think it's important to say that on the whole, historically, when white working class communities get quite as frustrated and, can I swear, pissed off as they are in much of the developed world, we're in for tough times. Because if you like, that is the community that is the kind of engine of the world. I, I mean, I'd love it to be, I mean, Africa is just sort of ravaged, but you know, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, so, um, the fact that we still talk about white working class is indicative of the problem because actually a significant problem is white workless class communities. And we haven't even got a term for it. Sometimes people talk about the underclass. Um, but there is both that phenomenon and a stagnation in earnings and prospects and possibility for that significant community that I think means that we're into very tough time indeed. And I'm just going to move on to you in a minute, Dawn, but can I just ask you a quick question off the back of that, Mike? You talked about America and the UK. I mean, I, this is very anecdotal, but whenever I've been to America and talked to people about income inequality, they talk about it in a very different way than they do in the UK, and it seems very, very based on earnings yes. and less based on cultural factors. To what extent yes. are cultural factors still important in inequality in the UK? Absolutely. I mean, cl culture is still at the heart of class, in a way. There's the economic dimension, but I think the British, um, you know, do have a peculiar obsession with class. Um, and actually, to give you one example of that, in, in most countries in the world, if you ask people what class do you belong to, you get some kind of response, majority of response is kind of middle class, you know. I'm somewhere in the middle, I'm not super elite, I'm not right at the bottom. But in Britain, we still have this um, majority of the population, when they're asked that in survey, say they're working class. Now, these are not people working in coal mines anymore or on the shipyards. Um, they're often doing professional white-collar jobs. But I think we have that notion that we are particularly aware of issues of snobbery, you know, people being above themselves, and we have a, a strong belief in democratic values. Um, and we see these being eroded, in a sense, by recent trends and recent developments. And so I think it's leaving people feeling increasingly, uh, as, uh, as I said over here, sort of uh, frustrated and, and marginalised. It's interesting you say that. I was just wondering if most people define themselves as middle class. Yeah. I remember writing an article about a neighbour who I grew up next to in Staley Bridge in the north of England, and um, I was going to describe them as working class, and I wondered if they would think it was derogatory, so mm -hmm. I rang them up and asked them. Because, mm. um, you know, in, in income terms, perhaps, I don't know if you would maybe define <coughs> them as lower middle class, and they just said, of course we're working class. And mm -hmm. the idea that it would have been derogatory wouldn't have even occurred to them at all. No. Um, Dawn, just political context here. I mean, we are in a situation where the two major parties appear to be dividing more in terms of what they stand for. Do you think that Jeremy Corbyn, when he talks about inequality, you know, would, would actually be doing very radical things in society if he were to become Prime Minister? Um, I think he could do easily. I think at the moment... Um, when I go around different communities around the UK, I mean, I think I've been told by a lot of academics over and over again, and I never quite bought it, that the white working class were extraordinarily racist, they would always go with UKIP, they would never go with Labour. 
Um, and then when Jeremy Corbyn came in, I think things started switching. And as soon as you talk about inequality, as soon as you talk about standards of living, as soon as you talk about shared values around you know, the education, the NHS, etc., you suddenly saw lots of things shifting. I'd go to lots of quite poor communities and I was up in um, Redcar, I was in Port Talbot, lots of areas that had kind of drifted away from Labour for a while and everybody I spoke to seemed very excited. And I think it was quite telling to me that, that even though we are in quite a polarised society, as soon as you started talking about what brought people together, and it was mostly kind of you know what what they would term working class values, such as you know caring for each other, building a community, like making <coughs> sure that the local school, the local um, hospital were were you know were working well, that was when you saw people sort of drifting more towards labour. So I found it very interesting that certain academics who kept who kept saying that UKIP were on the rise, UKIP would overtake labour, turned out to be wrong, and that actually. I think a lot of people had uh, un underestimated and undervalued and just not really bothered thinking about the working class for maybe 10, 15 years in the Labour Party and you know, the Conservative Party. And I think Brexit was a response to that. But then when you actually turned around and said, well, here are some policies that could make your lives better, people actually listened and David may disagree. <laughs> well, we will come to that point in a minute. But before we do, um, I just want to ask you, one of the things, Abid, we think about a lot when we're talking about classes, opportunity, mm -hmm. social mobility, you know, what, what are your opportunities? Mm -hmm. What does privilege perhaps in education offer you? I mean, can you give us a bit of a context of um, how privileged the arts world is and whether mm -hmm. there is an open door to people from diverse backgrounds? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things we talk about in the arts and cultural sector is the talents everywhere, but the opportunity isn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that opportunity varies from art form to art form. And for me, that's the really interesting element of it, that actually when we talk about theatre, when we talk about classical music, when we talk about opera, there's very, very different challenges. And I think historically, I think one of the things we haven't done is talk about issues of class and socioeconomic background when we talk about diversity within the arts and cultural sector. So we've kind of been very much driven by the legal imperative and class has never been part of the legal imperative in terms of the Equality Act. So one of the things we've started doing at the Arts Council is kind of talking about a more creative case for the conversation around diversity, which becomes less reliant on the legislation. Because I think, uh, for me, the art sector doesn't reflect the society that we have in England. It's a mirror of the privilege and where the power lies. And to undo that, we have to kind of unpack 60, 70 years of historic inequity. And I think that's the challenge when you're working as a policymaker. You could take two steps forward, uh, but the scale of that kind of progress you begin to make is kind of reflected across a much wider backdrop. And, and certainly from my perspective, uh, even when I think about class, so I, I'm a son of migrants. My parents came to England in the 60s. My mom came in the 70s. I was the first of my siblings who was born in the UK. And we grew up in Sparkbrook, Small Heath, which is Peaky Blinder uh, territory for those who follow the show. And I had no concept of class. I was happy as a child. We didn't have much. It's only when I got to university that I suddenly realized that there's people who have so much more than I do. Uh, who could actually spend more on an evening at than I could. And I think that's the point in my life where suddenly I realised actually we live in an unequal society. And I think for me, that personal experience drives my uh, 
ambitions as a policymaker. But I think it was interesting for me that moment when I woke up and saw actually there is a disparity and I'm on this side of that disparity. Okay, that's really interesting. And um, one thing you touched on, and maybe I could put this to you, David, was the idea that we've talked a lot for many years about certain diversity issues. I know you said backstage you don't like the word diversity, but, you know, we've talked about race, we've talked about gender. Is social class the elephant in the room, the thing that we really should be focusing on? Yeah, okay, so I want to blow up a few things. I hate the diversity business. (laughs) It fudges everything together. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about race and racism. Uh, We don't really get into the grips of sort of feminism and gender. So the diversity industry, I've got problems with, and I don't like being Bane. The (laughs) other problem, because I'm not bloody jargon, you know. (laughs) The, The other problem is be wary of the progressive liberal tendency which now includes some on the centre-right to talk about social mobility. Because what it really is about is (coughs) how do we get some working-class folk to be like us? Mm -hmm. That is not the dream. The dream is that you can be a nurse, you can be a dustman, and you can have a good life. That's the dream. It's It's part of this mistake that Britain made to make everybody go to university. It was a mistake. No one actually yet in either party has said it was a mistake and they want to turn it around. But but to the extent that social mobility is perhaps a word that is used basically to say we shouldn't have an entire group of people unable to make those choices. Okay, well, let's be more radical than that. Uh, Because actually, that's not the question. The question is, the problem is, at the heart of class, is if you are in London and the South East, if you are over 45, if you have been to a Russell Group University, you are doing pretty bloody well. You own a home. You may even own two homes. You are part of the asset class. You are sorted in this country. If you are in the industrial north, if you are in a seaside town, if you are young, if you are poor in a council house like Grenfell, like Grenfell Tower, you are screwed in this economy. That's the real divide. And hence, of course, in the North, people might say, I'm working class. They're less likely to say that, the same sorts of people, if they're living in Surrey, Hampshire or, um, or Kensington. And do you and think that wild. makes any difference to how content they are? I've often been struck that when you actually, in fact, both by what Abid said, but sometimes when you're out <coughs> doing stories in some communities where actually you're not living next door to people who are much wealthier than you, that you actually see a different type of attitude emerge. Well, you know, I do think that the juxtaposition of profound wealth being part of the asset class and those who are outside it is best personified by the West Kensington community around Grenfell Tower is, um, you know, it leads to serious social tension. And I re- represent an area that's had two riots in a generation. So that is, that is absolutely the case. But the point is, we've got to get, I think people are in a systemic change place. And the problem for old European societies particularly this one, is we tend to do things very incrementally. And the, 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 the compass between the political parties, certainly in the least, has been very 
very narrow. Uh, you know, Theresa May, um, you know, her responses to dealing with some of these problems feel very incremental, so it's looking weird. Now, Jeremy's prescription is much more radical. You can then question how new the radicalism is, but I have come to the view that for the Labour Party to offer a traditionally Blairite formula would not be sufficient because that's not going to change the asset class, is it? Okay, well, uh, let's talk about some of the solutions. And Mike, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but um, Dawn touched upon the election. And I wonder (coughs) if, as a sociologist, you might know some of these answers. I mean, it's a very, very complicated picture that we got from that election. Jeremy Corbyn outperformed anyone's expectations, um, held on to much of the working class vote that people said was going to disappear, and yet Theresa May got a record vote for the Conservatives among C2DE um, communities. Uh, Tell us, is there a picture that we can build up in terms of the class divides and politics? I think that that final point is absolutely crucial. Um, It is true, Jeremy Corbyn did much better than many of us were expecting, and the Labour Party did a fantastic campaign. Interestingly, I've just saw some research by a political scientist who looked at the, the, the um, surveys of the, the voters, and actually uh, middle-class people are now more, more likely to vote Labour than, than, uh, than Tory. Um, there's a shift. Working-class people actually did shift towards the Conservatives. And so it's but was it still the case that Labour won more of the working-class vote? I think it's pretty much even Stevens. Oh. I think in certain areas, obviously the Industrial North and Wales and so forth, that was still the case, but it's very, very uneven. But I, I would pick up the big, the big shift, which came out very strongly in the Brexit campaign and in the election is the age issue, because it's younger people and, <laughs> the, younger and, and the student vote was obviously decisive in many parts of the country. Uh, ethnic minority community, very strongly behind and Labour. Is that because happy. of offers on tuition fees, or do you think that that was perhaps to do with a deeper value and culture factor? Uh, I think it, it is obviously the, the, the policy about tuition fees is a headline winner and it got some support, but I think it's deeper than that. And it goes back to this issue of inequality because you know, if you take the point which the economists have been making, that you know, inequality is, it builds up year by year. Uh, and therefore, it's, as, as David was saying, it's the older generation who've really benefited. So the people in the 40s, 50s and 60s, if they come from the right background and the right jobs, they're, they're very well off. But it's the younger people who are being locked out of that. And so the biggest, arguably the biggest uh, growth of inequalities is between age groups and between generations. And hence, it is a really interesting issue about kind of how younger people of different kinds of, you know, class backgrounds are going to go. They clearly feel uh, marginalised. They didn't vote for Brexit. I mean, they're the ones who wanted to stay in Europe. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn did a great job in winning them over. And I think that's, that's, that's the hope in a way that that, that community, that, that constituency will will we'll switch towards a more radical progressive politics. And just, I want to ask you, Dawn, a question on this, but just before <coughs> I do, I constantly ask this question. It's a bit um, off track here, but do we think that something has changed in society, that those young people will not tend towards conservatism as they get older, as they once did? Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, I think so that the sh- the, it, there is a shift going on slightly, and some people will, get, uh, will, will tend to... Tend to um, towards the Conservatives, but if you take young people, uh, if you take the age, age divisions 30, 40 years ago, they weren't that marked, you know, so it didn't make much difference whether you're young or old as to whether you voted Labour or Conservative, okay. and now it's a really big shift, a really big difference. Um, okay, and, and Dawn, kind of building on this, but also um, a point David hit on, education. Education is clearly quite an important thing, and over the years, politicians have often sought to break down the kind of status divide between universities and other forms of education. 
Do you think we're getting anywhere with that? And if not, what do we need to do? Um, I think one of the big problems is that most politicians are focused on getting more people into university and what they need to do is focus on making schools better. Mm. And what the Conservatives have done is focus on free schools, which is a great way of taking a huge amount of cash, throwing it in middle class areas to essentially give them their own <coughs> private schools but under a different name. Whereas at the same time, you know, the the kind of school that I went to in South Wales that my cousins go to in Belfast, etc. All of those schools are really, really suffering. All their teachers are, you know, kind of struggling to get by. I've got friends who uh, live in Oxford and they say that their kids, uh, in their kids' schools, the class size, are, class size are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because the teachers can't afford to live in Oxford. Mm. So they're going elsewhere to find jobs. So I think that we focus <laughs> a lot on universities and universities are very good at that kind of poor form of social mobility where you get people like me who are outliers in a very, very poor community who get good grades and you basically throw them into the middle classes and say, great job done and everybody else stays, you know, pretty much the same place. But what you don't do is focus on how to make schools better, how to make sure that everybody who, you know, um, everybody who, who can achieve a certain GCSE grade does achieve that, that GCSE grade and that there are opportunities for them afterwards. And also that it's not just about GCSEs, that it's about uh, you know, apprenticeships that are, that are paid for properly, um, mm -hmm. rather than ones that are paid kind of three pound an hour, that are only helpful if you actually have parents who can then subsidise you while you're doing it. So I think we focus a lot on universities, and we don't focus enough on either getting kids to universities in the first place or making sure their schools are good, or making sure their schools are you know, well funded in the first place. Okay, and, and in terms of mm -hmm. the arts, I mean, how important is your education. I mean, we were having this debate with colleagues in The Guardian today mm -hmm. where um, a lot of national newspapers would expect you to have a degree in order to come and be a reporter on a national newspaper. And a few of us were saying, you know, we have degrees, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure how much that actually helped with my professional yeah. development. What really helped was working yeah. and learning on the job. Is that the same yeah. in the arts? I think it's still an issue in the arts and cultural sector. So, for example, if you want to work in classical music, if you want to work in the museum sector, there's a very high entry level and a very particular subject that you need to have studied. So I was speaking at a conference last week in Leeds, uh, which was the Conservatoires UK, and the data that they shared on the number of BME students who are from the UK in the Conservatoire education system was startling. We've got just over 700 students in the entire Conservatoire system across Great Britain who come from a black or minority ethnic background. That doesn't include international students. Significantly more, so it's a tiny percentage. Um, and then within that, of those 700 odd students, over 50% of them come from London. So again, that comes back to the point that David made. So what happens with that skew in London? And then when we talk about the lack of diversity, whether it's class, race, disability, gender, in classical music, in the opera sector, you're talking about 700 students a year trying to fill or address that diversity problem that those sectors have, and it's not going to happen. And then within that, we also have the issue of churn rate within the organisation. So actually, if you are part of an orchestra, you could be part of that orchestra for a number of years. So w what are the catalyst for creating the opportunities for that talent pipeline that we're beginning to develop. And certainly from my own experience, um, when I went to university, I originally wanted to study law. 
And that was the decision because my parents made the sacrifice so that I could get better education and to have the opportunities they didn't have. I went to one law lecture and changed to marketing um, because I hated it. But I think what was interesting is there's a generational shift happening in the UK now. So as a parent now, I would encourage my children to pursue whatever opportunities they're interested in. And I think, certainly speaking from a South Asian perspective, we've developed enough doctors and accountants and yeah. lawyers. We <laughs> now need to develop directors, actors, artists. And but how do you persuade people from communities who, you know, their parents probably never been to the opera? Mm. Um, you yeah. know, I certainly think this yeah. from where I grew up. No one had ever been to the yeah. opera. How do you persuade kids that they're yeah. going to... Opera might not be the, the best example, but I can certainly <laughs> speak to theatre. Uh, so I did a research project a few years ago just looking at philanthropy and South Asian giving. So South Asian communities in England, they're probably amongst the most generous in the UK, but they gave very little to arts and culture. Uh, they felt it was uh, self-subsidising, they didn't see the value of it. But the one thing that kind of set a light bulb moment for the business leaders I spoke to is when you started talking about children and young people. And I think what the arts does do is give young people confidence, it raises their aspiration, it gives them a voice and the social skills. And one of the things that a lot of parents are saying to me is they need to get their kids off the PlayStation, off their games consoles, and arts and culture plays a really key role. The challenge we have is when we talk about issues of class, you can't just talk about it in isolation. So we're talking about it within the context of arts and culture, but there's a systematic change that needs to take place. So if you're a young person growing up in Tower Hamlets or Sparkbrook in Birmingham, uh, if you're not being taught art in your primary school or your secondary school, if your youth centre has been closed down, where do you get that opportunity? So one of the things we're trying to do at the Arts Council, and it's very early days, and, and it's something that our chief executive has been a huge advocate for, is a kind of 25-year talent plan. So the moment you're literally born, we start to think about actually how do we ensure you, you get the opportunity <laughs> to <laughs> play music, to take part in the arts, and not feel you only get that if your parents can afford to send you to... What, could you be going down to an acting class on a Saturday with your five-year-old rather yeah. than um, the football, for example? Yeah, absolutely. That's what you're trying to do. Okay, and, and just on the education theme, David, you have to talk to us a bit about uh, <laughs> your uh, recent fracas. Is that the right word? With um, yeah. Oxford in particular. Just just tell us what, what how obstructive Oxford have been in terms of what you've Incredibly been trying to do. Incredibly obstructive. Um, incredibly obstructive and you know what this subject is about is again systemic change what does the data tell us and why is it that in 2017 it was so hard for me to get the data why is it not freely available I've also got to ask and I'm, I'm very grateful for the partnership with the Guardian to put, to, to put this out there and that's the second time that I've worked with the Guardian to do that um, um, you, why are our political class of journalists not going after this stuff anyway, all the time? Why does it take a backbench MP to do this? Because a lot of them have been to Oxford and Cambridge, basically. Don't so, point at me, so, I went to Warwick. So the issue is, 82% of these universities is in the top two social classes. These are the sons and daughters of newspaper editors, judges, mm. consultants... 82%, that we have whole parts of the North 
going over five years, never sent anybody. Uh, Salford, nobody, last year. Uh, uh, Rochdale, nobody, last year. But the London Borough of Richmond uh, and the London Borough of Barnet, two London boroughs, have sent more than the entirety of Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester and Wales. That's the country you live in. And they're not to push back and they say it's all about the schools. It's all the school's fault. It, almost there is no responsibility for us. This is what we get, you pass the grade. And my challenge to them, because I was lucky enough to go to Harvard Law School and I know a lot about the American system, is that the, and this is the bit that Brits don't fully grip and understand, is the schools are worse in the United States but the Ivy League universities are more representative of America than ours over here. That is the truth. And the reason they're more representative is because, one, they, they, they say, Harvard would say, get me the two brightest kids in Harlem. I don't care what grades they've got, get me the two brightest kids in Harlem. Uh, and they don't ask them to have the same grades as the two kids on the Upper West Side of New York that have had privilege. Whereas in our system, it's basically jump through a set of hoops that start with the 7 plus, the 11 plus, yeah. grammar schools. And even when they do say they're taken from state schools, <laughs> they're basically taken from certain faith schools and certain grammar schools. Uh, and then there are a couple of schools like Fortismere and Harringay that's basically Muswell Hill. <laughs> and basically that's about it. That is the system. And people pay a lot of money to send their kids to private schools. And the deal is you're going to get my kids to Oxford. So there's a whole system set up that's not about to change. And, and, and I think that, I mean, where I slightly disagree with you on the education, there are things to do in our education system, big things to do in our education system, but actually things have got incrementally better. The real issue is to scrap A-levels, scrap the academic vocational divide, stop the nonsense that, you know, when I became education, uh, a higher education minister, there was this big fanfare and we got more kids to university than ever before in our time. And I looked at the data and I looked at the data and I thought, hang on a minute, there are more black kids at one university in North London, and it's not UCL, <laughs> than the rest of the system combined. Is this progress? Is paying nine grand a year? And then some of these kids were told, do media studies at this former poly and you can go and be a producer at Radio 4. Bullshit! <laughs> They're told a load of crap and it's, it's, it's criminal. It's criminal. That's what's going on in our country. It needs to be blown open. And the other agenda actually, not just the vocational academic get rid of the A-levels, is bring back night schools. I would be seriously pissed off if I was in a seaside town in a crap zero-hour contract and there's no bloody way you can get from that job somewhere else without the training and you've got a government telling you you've got to go to university and pay nine grand a year to do it. Of course you can't. So where is the adult education in our country? Where are the politicians wanting to talk about it or do anything? We are, we've got such a deep, deep problem. And even my party is not really gripping these issues in the way that it needs to to deliver profound change. Thank you. It's a good job we said you could swear. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Um, before I open up to questions, I've got one last question for you, Mike, but I just want to tell a little, a little story off the back of the um, Oxbridge example, which always got to me at the time. There was, on X Factor a few years ago, there was a band called The Risk. If there are any X Factor fans out there, you might remember it. And there was a lad on The Risk called Ashley Jean-Baptiste. And halfway through X Factor, he dropped out. And X Factor never mentioned his background, his backstory at all, really. Um, I, I think they might have said that he had grown up in care, but that was it. And it turned out that this guy had, he was from a mixed race background, half Jamaican. He had grown up in several care homes throughout his um, childhood. At one point, he almost got expelled from school after fly kicking a head teacher in the face. And, and there's a story where the head teacher basically said he had this kid's life in his hands and he decided not to exclude him. And this kid, got, um, the Sutton Trust found him, they found, as they do, and they find kids and they show them elite universities and, and you know, take them on courses, etc. And so they took Ashley Jean-Baptiste to Cambridge and amazingly he got really inspired by it and he totally turned around his education and he got to Cambridge and you can imagine how many people there were like Ashley Jean-Baptiste from a mixed race Jamaican background and a childhood in care. I think we worked out there had been five people ever um, with that kind of background and I wrote about it at the time because I was very frustrated that X Factor never told his story because you think how many people could you inspire (laughs) by one mention on X Factor on Saturday night. Hmm. And he went back to his community and he then ran programmes for um, lots of other kids from the same background to try and inspire them to go to uh, universities. Although I agree with you, that's not always the answer, um, to go to university. And I just thought, when Oxford were arguing with you on the Today programme, I thought, I, th- I thought it was a disgrace, actually. The idea <laughs> that their job starts at the entry point um, is a bit of a joke. So anyway, I've always thought that was really interesting from the Ashley Jean-Baptiste point of view. Now, just before we go to questions, I want to ask you one last question, which may seem obvious, but I guess sometimes it's worth putting it out there. Why does inequality matter? What damage does it do to society? Lots of damage, and uh, I mean, lots of research on this. There's a very famous book called The Spirit Level, written by uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. came out a few years ago, which I recommend anyone to read it if you haven't done so. And what they, what they show using uh, comparative analysis of, of main nations is that the more unequal a country is, the worse that country scores and a whole host of measures, you know, health, um, life expectancy, people's sense of well-being, rates of depression, suicide. And the argument is quite simple in a way that, um, you know, it, it used to be believed that if you can raise people from poverty, then that's the key thing. But actually, if, we, if you live in a society which is very, une- and very uneven, People actually feel a sense of um, shame and stigma if you're at the bottom, a sense of insecurity, which I think we experience now. And um, therefore, the, the, the policy issue must be to tackle inequality and see that central, because it actually unlocks a whole series of things. I would really make the point um, that the political turmoil we're seeing around the world, you know, and, and kind of people questioning democracy and the rise of, of racism and nationalism. You've got to understand that in terms of growing inequalities, how, how that is making people feel extremely uh, drawn to kind of uh, radical, though superficial and uh, misleading solutions. <coughs> Just small one point. small <laughs> point linked to that point, because there are unlikely to be many people in the audience who are from, if you like, that workless community. And it's just in representing, you know, my constituency, it's also to get your head around how hard it is if your life, the insecurity of life, if you're dependent on benefits. 
that we are moving, and we have moved really towards a society that's more like the United States. So I grew up poor, and I think there are others on the panel who grew up with not very much, but we had a quite a lot of stability. Um, and that stability is everything. And there are lots of people in society who are living deeply unstable, chaotic lives with all that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid we have run out of time, so I would like to thank our panel. <laughs> <laughs>